is History Unloaded with Danny and Ashley. And today we are going to talk about how Danny's career can end now because he has been footnoted in court documents. I thought that was an actual threat to cancel me. <laughs> We've talked about it enough. Not today. Not today. Danny. Not today. Not, it's trying not today. A good ending. Going out on a high note, I guess. I've been officially cited. It's very exciting. I don't know if anything has cited me yet. Well, other than I me. have. Does it make it sound less cool? Well, I was thinking about it, but I get these with me. ever since I wrote the RMAX article, like we put that in like journal listings. So I'll get random email notices that so-and-so cited you, but then I can never actually find a paper where they like quoted me or used me, like did anything. So I don't believe it. I feel like it's just bait to get me to click on the website. Wait, that's a thing? Yeah. Oh. Maybe the courts are right. Maybe I don't know nothing about <laughs> academics. But that's just like the listing service that we use for RMAX. And I don't know that I've never linked to where like I show up somewhere else. So you're the only one that I know for sure where I show up at. Also, I still couldn't actually find it if I tried. Oh, yeah. No, I can't find it if I tried. But you know what people can find? Apparently my cell phone number. <laughs> right. That's That's good. That's what you want. That's what you want. It has not been going well for me. It was like, note to Ashley, take your phone number off your CV when it's an exhibit in a court case. Yeah. Oops. Good plan. Good plan. Lesson learned. Uh, but, you know, it's kind of interesting because of all these court cases, it feels like everybody's been cited at one point or another. I mean, I try to cite Ian as much as possible because, well, it's Ian. <laughs> but it's always interesting to read the room on, like, somebody that doesn't know who Ian is yeah. uh, from outside the community. But, you know, Jonathan Ferguson gets cited all the time. I actually saw Seth Isaacson from um, Rock Island uh, Rock Island auctions. He got cited in something, and so it's kind. Of, and he made the uh, observation of, "I wonder how many times I'm being cited in court cases." It's kind of interesting. Has the podcast been cited? As yeah, as discussed it's, on it's History Unloaded, I was in your CV. That no, no, it's on my CV. Yeah. I would rather people not listen to the podcast. <laughs> you don't want Judge Benitez listening. <laughs> oh, Benitez probably be fine with it. <laughs> I don't know. <laughs> Don't know if it helps my credibility or not. This podcast, I think it Clarence Thomas on the tunes in. Persons. Who? Clarence Thomas. Oh, okay. Yeah, I know who he is. <laughs> so, anyways, it's been a weird year, and I know we've talked about this before in relation to my expert witness testimony. But I think we wanted to talk a little bit today about. Um, kind of the shift within the Bruin decision, the Supreme Court decision last year, and the impact that that's had on the historical community, but then also shifts in gun culture in general and how that's impacting kind of public education and what's going on at the Cody Firearms Museum, um, which I feel like yours sounds a lot more optimistic than mine. Yeah, maybe. I, and I still haven't asked you why I was cited, which I want to know at some point, but I think we got talking about this and it's- You read it. What? You read it. Yeah, but it's been like more than a month. So I don't remember anything past that. <laughs> it's a, How am I a curator? I don't remember anything. You have to. You have an assistant. I remember gun details and nothing about my own schedule. It's great. Um, but anyways, we were talking about the- There's like this parallel, right? Because the courts are shifting and what is like relevant to the courts. And there's all these cases that started pre-Bruin and some that have started post-Bruin. And um, there's just, there's a lot of 
shift that that has caused. And at the same time, to me, and we talked a little bit, we've talked about this on previous podcast episodes, but never made the connection between the two. There's also this ongoing shift in like in firearms culture and history um, that to some degree, at least is playing out in the museum. And maybe it's just sort of a trend for the moment. And by this time next year, it'll have faded or maybe it's um, longer lasting and has more impact, but it's, it's noteworthy. I think that the two shifts are happening for very different reasons, but, at the same time. Yeah, you wonder how much crossover there actually is. Before we were recording this podcast, Danny was telling me about middle schoolers coming in and asking about volcanics. And my response was, do you think they're reading the court cases? <laughs> Probably not. Classic Probably middle not. school government class, which I don't know of as, as a thing, but to read ongoing court, Ninth Circuit court decisions. So to kind of give, let's give a quick rundown of, I'll give a quick rundown of what's gone on with the Bruin decision. And then we can kind of talk about shifting culture in general, because I, I feel like we've talked about this, but it, you know, not everyone listens to every episode. So um, last year, June of 2022, I like years are running together now for me. I'm that old, but June of 2022, there was a Supreme court ruling <clears throat> excuse me, um, that was about a New York law about, um, oops, sorry, Camila just said BRB in a, in the comments. Sorry, people. I had a squirrel moment. <laughs> Camila left and it just distracted me to know it. So anyways, in 2022, there was a Supreme court decision that, um, discussed, a kind of carry of firearms and the idea of sensitive places. Uh, and I don't really get into a lot of that, but one of the kind of things that happened from the Bruin decision was this test um, called the Bruin test. I'm saying this very eloquently today because I'm sick, but the Bruin test essentially thrust history into the forefront of one of the most important things when determining the constitutionality of a firearms law, which like, you know, in and of itself kind of sounds a little bananas, right? A little. A little. Like, I understand it, but then it's also kind of like, <laughs> huh? I don't think anyone anticipated the fallout from that uh, in terms of the historical field. But through the Bruin test, and I don't know, I should say Bruin's not the first time that history's played a really important role. It's played an important role in Heller and McDonald. But the Bruin decision basically set up a hierarchy of timeframes that were the most important when analyzing a firearms law. So the most important time frame is what they call the founding era, which is around the ratification of the Second Amendment, 1791. Um, and then the second most important time frame is what they call the second founding era, which is around the ratification of the 14th Amendment in 1868. And then I believe after that, it is... Um, information leading up to and directly after post enactment of the second amendment to inform the mindset of the founding fathers and then how they intended to use their um <clears throat> their their uh, constitution right afterwards and then it goes into um uh, you know mid 19th century uh latter half of the 19th century and then the least important is the 20th century <laughs> Which is really, really interesting because most firearms-specific uh, firearms feature-based laws occur in the 20th century. There are there are you know some laws you know like the Army Navy laws um, in the South, but those are usually more geared to carry rather than necessarily feature or function. So it's been really interesting because it's kind of it's 
grabbed historians from a lot of different areas that have never done you know expert witness testimony before and is looking at not just the evolution of technology uh what was available but then also would people have known about it if the founding fathers knew about it was there you know a law that regulated said item um and that's where the other big part of Bruin comes in which is historical analogy so is there a law that is comparable to a modern law some at some point in a relevant time in history so if you've got you know a magazine capacity restriction then are there any laws of the founding era that would have restricted the number of rounds that you were allowed to carry um and then some of the arguments you see on both sides um, the the one side, um, the more pro-gun side, tends to argue that while there, in fact, there were militia rules that required a minimum amount of ammunition to be carried on a person uh, at, every, at any given time. And then one of the other laws on the other side that gets cited is the um, restriction of the amount of powder that's allowed to be kept in the home, um, which are known as firearms, French and laws, firearm safety laws. Um, and so that's kind of, they, they do the back and forth of that. So trying to decide if there's any old laws that can be comparable to a modern law. And that's ultimately for the court to decide. Uh, they don't have to be a historical twin, so it doesn't have to say 10 round mag, 10 round mag. It has to be something that the court would deem historical, um, historically comparable. And so then you get historians on both sides throwing their stuff out, and then you get the lawyers arguing in, and then you get you know decisions from the judges, which have been all over the board. I mean, have been all over the board. Um, you know, some things fly in some states and other things don't fly in those in other states. I mean, it's been really, really interesting. But for me, it's been kind of disappointing because it's taken a lot of good historical research and tried to invalidate it because it doesn't necessarily have a PhD attached to it. But then it's also pitting people against one another that should be having dialogue and encouraging conversation to build a body of knowledge rather than tear each other down to be right. Yeah. And it, like, as you said, it's sort of thrown the whole, you know, there was like a set expectation of what would happen when these laws got examined at the Supreme court level. And now it's kind of upended that. And there's certainly lots and lots of um, like, I don't know, there's all sorts of articles and papers and blog posts and Twitter commentary about like what this means for the future of like law in general, the second amendment law, and you know, more specifically, um, but to focus on, or to flip to what I said at the or beginning or what I was bringing today was like, not to be provocative, <laughs> but will it matter in like 10 years? Because in, at the museum level, what I see on like a day to day, especially this past summer, it was like highlighted for me. Um, I say, will it matter somewhat to be for shock value, but as also a, at least partially a, a real question, like the culture is shifting in a way that like, we all assume that it was not to be like too stereotypical, but it was like all the old white guys that were propping up like pro gun stuff. Like they were the NRA members and they were the gun owners. And like, that's been said how many times by how many people, um that that's the demographic that owns and supports pro-gun stuff but in the museum ever since the renovation we started to see our demographics change one i think and that was a goal that you and i had you you had specifically to like see a wider amount of people appreciate firearms history what they walked away with we you know that's up to them but we wanted them to just appreciate the importance of this history um 
And we did survey work that showed that that was happening to a degree. Like we're getting a slightly younger audience. We're getting more families uh, involved. We were getting, um, you know, more female visitors and not just male visitors. Like, so we we were seeing the shift and we've talked about the shift um, some in the history of the podcast as well, but there were just probably once a week this summer, it felt like I would have an instance where it was just like, even with our new change in how, what we wanted museum to be, this is beyond my expectation. And two really good examples. One time I saw, it was like three college age and I've gotten really bad in my, now my thirties at judging anybody younger than me and what age they actually are. Just like, I can't tell anybody who's shorter than me and what height they're actually are. They're just shorter. You can't tell people are shorter. Than I can you. tell they're shorter than me. But if you said like, how tall is so-and-so I'd be like, I don't know. They're shorter than me. They're not five, eight. They're just, it's shorter than me. How tall am I, Danny? Well, I know that you're five foot. Mm-hmm. Everybody knows that you can Google it. <laughs> yeah. You can Google it along with your cell phone number. Um... <laughs> Shut up. No. <laughs> Actually, I feel like the people listening to this podcast, I don't want to get a phone call from anyone because I'm a millennial <laughs> and I don't talk on the phone um, unless it's Danny or my mom. And that's that's the truth. That's just that's facts. the limit. <laughs> Me or mom. Living. I guess we could add Mark too. Mark too. I talked to Mark. On but he's phone. cool enough that he actually texts like younger people do. Even though he's older than me, I call like I'm in my. Are you calling my husband old? He's older than me. That's all I'm saying. He's older than all of us. That's all I'm saying. But he's much more trendy than I am. Is he? I would say so. He seems cool to me, and I don't seem that cool to me. So, Yeah, Mark's pretty cool, I guess. I digress. Anyway, What were we talking about? So, <laughs> back to this point. There were three, what I assume were college-age females in the museum. And they... That sounded, that was like the most... I'm practicing like, for our new detective series. Three college-age females. Isn't it women? Women. Do people get mad about that? I don't know. I feel like the female versus woman thing. I don't know. It's like, I, I don't know, words. Three college age kids, which might also might be bad. I'm practicing for our new detective show, Lebinsky and Michael. Or go <laughs> and Marley's like scruff McGruff, yeah, yeah. like Marley's. Obviously. Yeah. And yeah. Anyways, these three. He's taking a bite out of cry. <laughs> that slogan's taken. <laughs> These three girls were talking in depth, like they read the label, looked in depth at like a Harper's Ferry flintlock, like, and they were discussing, and maybe we just had some egregious typo or something that caused them to read it, or plausibly, they were just studying this artifact and talking about it, and they were having a conversation, and I could like, and it wasn't just like they were having a conversation about anything, because I could see them pointing at the artifact, and I was just like, that's not what you, you know, if I said, who's our average visitor and like took a poll of who you expect our average visitor to be to a gun museum, that's not the dem- the demographic you would identify. So that one stood out to me. Um, and another one was we, you know, we get families in a lot uh, to see the museum, which is great. We, we love to see that. But we had a family come in and mom and dad like approached us as staff to ask uh, a question of because their son really wanted to see a particular gun cool. We try and help visitors find what they want to see. But the gun, the one, the son wanted to see was a volcanic. And he's, you know, the kid's like middle school age, like, I don't know, 10, 11, 12, somewhere in there. And just a few years ago to ask to see a volcanic was reserved to like, you had to be 
really in the weeds of like lever action history to even know what a volcanic was much less have a desire to see one and now just like family on vacation not necessarily maybe they're you know gun aficionados maybe they're just average people on vacation but here is a middle schooler presumably wanting to see a volcanic which just that kind of interest level on something that is pretty obscure uh also really stood out to me and it highlights what i think is happening more broadly in that you see polling numbers about you know like millennial and gen z interest in firearms or where they stand on firearms legislation and it's not necessarily what people would expect um in some ways it's more interested than i think people would expect um i think in most part because of video games um but there's other reasons as well and it's starting to play out like we don't have you know donors yet because of it to the museum but we're not that far off from it and to this wider discussion about back to Bruin, there's all this debate of like what's upended the field in terms of firearms law. Like this, this has changed how we interpret firearms law in 10 years when all these, you know, now teenagers are like in the voting demographic and they know what a volcanic is and care about that thing. How does that change the landscape um, to the point where like, now we have this history test, right? And volcanics are often cited in this sort of history test, uh, even though they're not the primary one. They're sort of close to the that secondary that second founding era that you mentioned. So I, I don't know. I guess that's a long-winded say way of saying like the demographics are changing. I think a lot more rapidly than people expect, and to the point where in the next ten or fifteen years, maybe even sooner, um, there's going to be like meaningful impact on legislation. I think. Yeah, I mean, it's interesting, too, that you talk about the diversification of people that have an interest in firearms. I don't want to say just gun owners, because mm-hmm. it's more than that for us. You know, it's about people with an interest in firearms. They don't have to own a gun or not. Um, but one of the like, disappointing things, I guess, that I've seen in the in being a part of like the expert witness world, uh, but being a part of that expert witness world was almost how much the diversification of voices has been st- stifled um you know it's you know we deal with a lot of different special interest groups lgbtq plus community um you know native american gun rights you deal with you know african american groups or or black american groups um but those voices you're not hearing as much unless they're an amicus brief so unless like lawyers from that group are are writing amicus briefs uh, for the court cases i've found that it seems to have gone back to old white guy syndrome (laughs) um from both a conservative and a liberal standpoint you know i you know i'm not trying to like woe is me but i mean i had a federal judge say that i don't count as a witness because of whom i'm married to and that was a woman you know so it's you know the few voices that you have out in the expert witness world that aren't just an old white guy seem to get stamped on and trampled on significantly and i'm not trying to imply that it's because of that but they use it as of a justification for why they don't listen to you um in very creative ways clearly since of who i'm married to <laughs> uh we can't say it's because you're a woman but we're gonna say it's because you're a woman uh but that's disappointing to me and i think it's the same with diversity of thought you're not really seeing that anymore um you know there was a panel recently um that i was not invited to go figure about you know bruin and fire 
courtroom's history in the Second Amendment. And it was called, you know, the use and abuse of history in the courtroom. And it was all witnesses from one side. And it, you know, very clearly showed that the if you are on the other side as an expert, that you must be abusing that history because we don't agree with you. You're abusing that history. And that makes me really sad to see because like, I guess I'm living rent free in a lot of old white dudes heads right now with PhDs. And I don't like, I don't hold any grudge to them. Like I think some of their scholarship is good. I don't think all of their scholarship is good, but I think what, you know, I'm happy to see people interested in the subject matter. And if their conclusions are different than mine, like I don't care, but it's, it's shown this kind of break, um, you know, in the history field of echo chambers that I'm not loving. And I think it's also squashing out you know, differing opinions on a spectrum. And I think that's really disappointing, especially considering that you're seeing, and I saw in the museum field when I was still at Cody, a diversification in interest. Yet at the top, at the, you know, the academic institution, it's as homogenous and siloed as it's always been, if not worse. And that's, that's a bummer to me. Yeah. That's my tech. That's my, that's, that's my, you know, academic opinion. It's a bummer to me. <laughs> um well, and yeah, I think part of the issue is like, right, like the people who are already credentialed enough um, to appear as, you know, to be useful for one side or the other to to argue in these cases, um, they're of an older generation. So they're like, they've been around prior to the the shift we've seen in the last, we'll say five years. Um, you know, you're not going to get a high schooler that got interested in firearms history because he played Red Dead to appear as a, a court witness, but in 15 years, he might be a credentialed expert. Like that's a possibility. Um, so there is, I, so there's like that top heaviness that you kind of alluded to that, like all these people that are now being used for expert testimonies come from a slightly not old school. I don't think, but they, they come from before this shift really started to, to play out. And we're all, I think we're on the kind of, beginning edge of it really um but it goes back you know when we when we did that one series on you know we did sort of a, a series reflecting on the changes of firearms demographics and and wondering would this mean anything for the museum like i remember we asking ourselves like hey the numbers are coming out right now that like all these firearms are being sold all these people are taking an interest in firearms um is that just a trend in the moment or does it play out longer term in a way that impacts us in the museum field, the history field more broadly, legal, all that. Um, I think we're starting to see that it is playing out, that it is more than just that moment. Certainly people that became interested in firearms then now are not. Um, but so many did that certainly some still are. And I, I, I do think we're seeing that play out along with the shift from, you know, just widespread, I'll call it positive media about firearms. I'm not sure everybody would, but, um, you know, thinking especially like video games where people get to use something in game and then go eventually still think that's cool when they grow up and finally have money to buy that thing. You know, a classic example right now is like the scar in Fortnite, you know, kids know that the scar is in Fortnite. And now some of those kids that played Fortnite are old enough to afford a scar. And that's happening. Like, that's a thing that has happened, Ugh. which is good on them, man. That's a real. But what does that mean? You know, if you're deep enough into practice. firearms culture to want to buy a scar, that's a probably that's like a miserable impact on um, where the debate is headed in the country. Well, and you almost wonder, I mean, 
Let's see if I can gather my thoughts on this. So you've got this kind of public interest dialogue going on, and then you've got this quagmire in the court system, and you hear about it a little bit, right? Like, oh, Miller was overturned, and everyone's like, woo! And I'm like, well, what does that really mean? Right. Because it just got stayed, and then it, you know, it's going to go back up, and it'll get bounced down, and it'll get bounced around. Uh, you know, so I don't really, and, and you know, this is, I'm not paid to be an attorney and to have these thoughts, but just kind of seeing it for, as an expert, you're kind of like, what is the point of all this? We're spending a lot of money to bounce things around a courtroom that isn't really changing anything. Like, how do we know if this law works if we can't, you know, ever see anything kind of come to fruition um, or it doesn't do what it says it's going to do, which I know we've talked about a lot with that, but it's like it bounces around the court so much and you do hear about it in the in the news, in the media, Camila. Um, you do hear about it, but it's not really changing anything because it's all still tied up in the court system. So is that really even having an impact on the average person who's, you know, learning about guns, interested in guns? Like, do you know, does the average person, not your people who are hardcore into the gun culture, which are, I'm not saying that those people aren't average people, but the people who are following the gun culture and the gun, you know, you know, gun legislation, but your average person, your kid that's, you know, playing Red Dead Redemption or Fortnite is the only two I, I know of because this is the two you said. Um, I played Mario Kart. So that's how far I go. Uh, we launched balloons <laughs> in Mario. <laughs> uh, and, and banana peels uh, in my video game world. But like, do you think any of those people give two Fs about what a bunch of like us nerds are saying on high if the laws never like never actually get thrown out or never actually get implemented like does it really is it does it matter Oof, that got real existential we're we're now the existential unloaded podcast um no i it's a really good question and not to be just complete devil's advocate but i flip it around do the court decisions matter if the cultural shift is happening faster than the court shift is like Ooh, that's a good question. So, I mean, I would say, oh, sorry, go ahead. I was just going to say, some some kid in, let's say, Red Dead is, I don't know how many years old right now, played Red Dead as a high schooler, is conceivably most of their way through college now and about to hit a job that pays, you know, real adult money and they could go afford to buy a Winchester. Like, that's a plausible scenario. And that is likely happening all over the country to some degree, you know, they sold 55 million copies of the game. Like it had an impact um, sort of like the old Westerns. You know, we've talked about this, like a lot of gun collectors that we see now is just like the old white guys collecting guns. Cause that, you know, we, that's the mental image we have of a gun show or like where this stuff happens. It's not necessarily completely true, but that's the stereotype I referenced earlier. You know, Winchesters and Colts are collectible because those guys grew up watching them in Western movies and now they sort of, you know, Western movies dropped off, but then here comes a Western video game that picks it back up. And now people are interested in those, that material culture again. So people are hitting that point and it's such a large impact. Something like that has such a large impact on so many people that even if like a fraction of those people then go and do that, you know, a, a percentage of the people who played Red Dead go buy a Winchester at some point in their life because they played that game that's a large number of people buying a Winchester and the same is true for Fortnite or uh, call of duty or any of that kind of stuff. Um, and that change, you know, that doesn't take, 
a huge that doesn't take a big legislative change to to happen that doesn't take the timing of the courts to happen um that can just sort of happen and it will happen regardless unless like the law gets so extreme that somehow lever actions are restricted which doesn't seem to be the case like that shifts and now somebody who owns and shoots a lever action firearm whether they consider themselves deep into firearms culture or not is pretty deep into firearms culture like that's you know, that's a pretty big step. So I, I would say that the cultural shift could outpace the court and legis- legislative shift. I think you're right. Um, but the other question on that is that there, if the cultural shift is outpacing the courts, then what happens when the courts finally finish their rulings? And and honestly, can they ever really finish it? I feel like it's never actually over. But then the laws get enacted and then you have this culture of people who are impacted by it, um, you know, positively or negatively. Mm-hmm. And then those people are like, what happened? Yeah, you yeah. know, because they weren't paying attention. It's almost like everything's acting separate from one another, but each side is asking enough questions to be able to pretend like they're representing their constituency mm-hmm. without really diving deep into the the diverse ownership and then vice versa. Like people are dipping into the understanding the laws enough to feel like they know what's going on when they don't. And that's everybody. That's not just one side or the other. Mm-hmm. It's they're working separate, but yet they give the illusion that they are listening to one another. Does that make sense? Yeah, it does make sense. But I think the, I guess where I'm going is that like, you know, just to to cut to the chase, like Gen Z and millennials pull more pro-gun than boomers and like the silent generation. So like the people that are stereotyped as like the diehard gun guys that, you know, the going to gun shows and, and into guns, are actually less pro-gun, statistically speaking, than Gen Z. So will that... Which is really interesting. Like, I didn't know And there's pretty, know that. there's pretty good and recent polling data to support this. Like, it's just, it's not what people expect. And it's, it's going to change the cultural landscape, I think, more quickly than it will change the court landscape. Even though Bruin just came in and completely changed the court landscape. Like the effects for that because of the time it takes to get something from an initial case to, you know, uh, through the various federal circuits all the way up to the Supreme court. That's a long process. Um, and right now to me, it seems that the culture is outrunning that process. And I could be, you know, this is all said with a caveat that I'm just somewhat of a anecdotal observer to this. You know, I'm not a, I'm not a sociologist. I'm not a data scientist. I'm none of the things that would qualify me to see this. I'm just someone who happens to be at this intersection of firearms history and everyday people who are just on vacation who need to kill some time in a museum for the morning. Like I happen to be at that intersection. I see it play out a little bit and I go, that's weird. Why does that, why is that going on? And then you find a few polling things like, oh, that's, that's not what I expected. Um, So I guess that's where I'm, coming from i was gonna make it like war what is it good for like joke but i couldn't i was like law legislation i didn't know what to say well but you know it's interesting too because we're what year plus out from bruin and things are things are you know slowing down at least in the expert world you know we threw all our stuff out there and then it just kind of becomes monotonous but 
Um, you know, I know I don't get the calls that I was getting for a year, which I am a grateful for. Um, because it just, I don't, that, that was where, like I, I said at a panel, you know, I, I want to get out of expert witness testimony because one, I'm tired of being classified as someone that I'm not, um, you know, I, all of this has made me really sit down and evaluate how much guns impact my life. And I hate to tell everybody that thinks differently, but other than my job, <laughs> And the fact that my husband works in the gun industry, <laughs> which apparently matters, guns play virtually no real role in my life. Like I collect them. I don't really go shooting very often. I have medical problems that make it kind of unappealing for me. Um, you know, so it's like, like I actually got excluded from a documentary, um, about the AR-15 because they wanted to do like, they wanted to do a sit down interview about the history, but then they wanted to like you know, do B-roll of me in my life with guns. And I was like, well, if I was still at the museum, then like you could come to the museum, but I had nothing to offer them. So they kicked me out of the documentary because I like, they couldn't get me at a range. It would be disingenuous, right? To just like go to the range and be like, ha ha, I shoot guns all day, every day. Like I shoot guns for my job and I've shot a ton of guns for my job, but I don't, I'm not like, oh, it's Saturday what do I want to do today? You know, I want to go to the gun range. It's just not my area of interest. And so it's really been kind of interesting as people have lobbed all these kind of accusations at me about being some, you know, crazy gun nut. And I'm like, you know, I really don't have that much going on with guns outside of my professional life. Um, you know, it's kind of interesting, but I don't know where I was going with that. Other than <laughs> I have no idea where I was going at a point. Well, it, but it's gone. I'm, oh, why I was getting out of it because, you know, you, you does make you really evaluate, you know, who you are and what you're doing. And for me, I got into guns, um, from a nerd reason. Like I was fascinated by the history of medicine, but I want to educate people to the best of my abilities. So get the white law, the largest audience I can, I'm not trying to preach one side or the other, never have, um, and it used to be that expert witness testimony was a great vehicle to do that. You know, I used to have great dialogues during depositions, um, you know, with the state, with the, you know, other side. And it was this really great way to have a platform to speak about history, to let people make their own conclusions. And it, because of Bruin, it's made it so volatile of your one side or the other, um, that it's not the place for me anymore because I want to be able to educate everyone without this baggage of politics and, you know, mudslinging in order to be right. So it's kind of interesting to see like, that used to be a great way to understand history. And now I don't think it is. I think it's it's very volatile and has completely missed the point of, you know, educating the public and actually trying to get to the root of something. Well, in some ways, wouldn't that make you kind of identify with this demographic that I've talked about? Like they might not strongly identify as a gun owner. You know, if if this hypothetical person who played a video game goes through college, decides, you know what, I still remember really enjoying that game. Oh, now I can buy this thing that was in the game and go take it to the range every once in a while. And that's really cool to me. While I would sit here and say, going to the trouble of owning a Winchester lever action or a scar puts you pretty firmly in gun culture, they might not see it that way, right? Like they're just doing it because of a video game. And they'll, and outside of that, that's just like, that's their hobby. They're not necessarily, um, diving into all the other aspects that might come with gun ownership. Um, you know, they, they might just 
view it as an outlet of their video game fandom and not an outlet of them wanting to be a gun enthusiast. But they've done well, all the steps. That... So they would, I think, identify somewhat like you just have. Yeah. And I think that that's something I've always said to to people over the years. Um, and we've talked about before. Gun ownership doesn't have to be your identity. Right. And I used to say that to 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 Mark. Now that we're just going to continue to drag my husband into it, um, but you know, when Mark and I would have disagreements on certain things, I would say to him, like, "Hey, you need to remember that you know, gun ownership is not necessarily the most important thing to a person. And if it's not the most important thing to a person, then they're going to see things differently than you. And I think we've kind of turned gun ownership into an identity. And and if you if that's you know, your life, that's your life. And I'm not judging that, but I think we lose sight of the fact that there are lots of people that don't necessarily want to make owning a gun, everything that they are. Um, and maybe that's being too unfair to people who are really passionate about gun ownership, but it's just kind of become a mess. And I don't think, you know, I used to think history would unite. And I think now we're just making the problem worse. Well, and I wonder too, like I could also see, and now, you know, before I was just speculating, somewhat and now i'm going to speculate wildly but you could run into this problem right where it's sort of the starbucks problem that gun owners had right gun owners starbucks didn't have a policy on open or they just said they would follow whatever the state law was so if you could open carry in that state we'll permit it in our stores conceal carry we'll permit it out in stores we're not going to stop you and then that got found out and that was viewed as like tacit support of open carry and then they have a big open carry I, i'm hazy on the details but you know what i'm talking about then there's like yeah. a big open carry movement like look starbucks supports us and then you force them to make a decision right and so then if a corporate entity has to be forced to make a decision they're going to be somewhat risk averse and they view that as a risky activity so then they'll say please don't open carry at our stores that makes other some visitors feel some customers feel uncomfortable and then they're touted as being super anti-gun when you kind of force them into a corner but with this demographic that we're that I'm discussing, like if they're not super into gun culture, just because if they view it as an outlay of this is my video game interest. Now I've bought something that's in real life that is also represented in game and I enjoy it sometimes. Probably the first side that loses if you know, in the political realm is the one that forces them to take an issue. So if somebody comes along and says, you can't own that because it has a detachable magazine, they're going to be like, well, screw you. I like, I used it responsibly. I enjoy this thing. Or if somebody comes along and says, hey, you own a scar. You're real into gun culture. You got to come open carry with us at Starbucks. Like they're going to be like, that sounds a little weird. I would just like to go to the range every once in a while. Like the first one to make them choose probably loses them. Oh, that's a really interesting. It's a really like they just want to be normal and occasionally enjoy this thing that they got because they got interested in it. And if you force them to be on one of the hyper partisan ends of the spectrum, you'll kind of lose them. And I think that's probably, you know, to go back to when we had uh, uh, David Yamane on the podcast, like guns are normal, normal people use guns. And for many of those people, that's not their primary identity. You know, it's a hobby they partake in, but that's not the hundred percent who they are. So with one of the, either end of the spectrum comes along and says, this is your identity because you own this thing. They're going to be like, that's not, that's not true. I just go and use it. 
I would like to point out that I think this might be one of our grandest tangents we've ever gone on. But it's kind of funny because I, we were talking about, or at least I was talking about whether you know or not historians should really get a say in this matter. <laughs> Bananas, I think was Bananas. the word I used. Um, and, and then the now we are we are two historians sitting around telling you what to think about gun identity. Classic. We, Classic. we are the problem, Danny. We are the problem. We. Hello, I'm the we problem. We are not a part of the solution. We are a part of the problem. Did you just sing a Taylor Swift song? All right, I think we need to to go. You think she'd write a theme song for our our buddy cop drama? Taylor Swift? No, Darn. not at all. That's disappointing. I want this production to be real. Levinsky and Michael. Well, with Groucho Marl. Groucho. <laughs> well, if anyone wants to write a theme song for a non-existent cop show we'll never get made. in which Danny and I are not cops, but we are going to pretend to be them because we're historians and we get to do what we want. Apparently. Yeah, apparently we talk about not interjecting ourselves and then absolutely interject ourselves. Interject ourselves. So if you want to write that, we're here. Give us a call. We have no money. Thanks. Bye.